Well, good morning. It's good to be here. Um, yes, I'm the finance guy, and that's probably a bit scary to have a finance guy up here speaking, but uh, hopefully it goes well for us today and we can learn from God's Word. Last Sunday, we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how he was the unblemished lamb that was the sacrifice for my sins and your sins, that we could stand righteous before the throne of God now and forever. This is the good news, right? This is the gospel. But that's not the end of the good news of the gospel. There is a second part of this historical event that has additional ramifications for you and I. And not only was Jesus raised from the dead, he was also seated in the heavenlies far above all rule and authority. Ephesians 1.20 says, He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things into subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Jesus' rule is not only in the future, it is now. He rules over the church. We belong to his kingdom, not only in the future, but also presently. And one of the ramifications of this is his current rule is that it goes beyond the written stone tablets of the law. Scripture tells us that Jesus came to ab not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law and to complete the old covenant and establish the new where the law is no longer written on stone tablets, but it's written on your human heart. And as it relates to this point, the expositor's Bible commentary states, the law pointed forward to Jesus, so he, in fulfilling it, establishes the true direction to which it points. You see, the written law is the starting point, and Christ's rule, the Jesus way that we're calling it, is the ending point. And that is what Jesus is bringing to light in Matthew chapter 5 as he covers six areas that we'll be going over in the next six weeks um, that brings this to light that there's a difference between the two. And so you can see the, the six that are brought up. And this week we're going to concentrate on the first one. And Jesus mentions the first commandment and that is, do not murder. In Matthew 5.21, where we begin our passage, he says, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Now, I'm sure that throughout history, there have been a few people that have decided that, you know what, I'm not going to murder because I don't want the consequences. I don't want the punishment. And they literally then fulfill the written law because they don't murder. 
There was a recent mass shooting in Brooklyn that we're all probably aware of, and fortunately no one was killed. But the individual behind that had actually written, his name's Frank James, had actually written on a social post before he did that um, event. Um, and this is what he wrote on his social post. He said, and this is without the explicit, so I, I, I kept those out. <laughs> I didn't think it was appropriate. So I've been through a lot where I can say I wanted to kill people. I wanted to watch people die right in front of my face immediately. But I thought about the fact that, hey man, I don't want to go to no prison. It would be hard to imagine that this is an example of the rule of Christ in our hearts just because you didn't murder. He literally was fulfilling the old law, the written law of not murdering. I think we would all agree that this is not the Jesus way. And Jesus is making a point here then he's going to drive that point home. And so Jesus shows us that murder is just the tip of the iceberg. There's more that lurks beneath the surface. And we see that moving on in Matthew 5, after he says what, you know, commit murder and you commit murder, you should be liable to the court. And then he goes on to say, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Obviously, anger also is not the Jesus way. In fact, Jesus says that anger has the same consequences as murder. And that kind of blows us away a little, but then he goes on and he says, if you call somebody an idiot, you have an even greater consequence. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, an, an idiot or empty-headed, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And then he goes on and he says, if you call somebody a fool, it's even a greater punishment. And whoever shall say you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the hell of fire. Now the hell of fire here in Greek is Gehenna, which was the fire that burnt outside the city of Jerusalem continuously. And at one point, um, that's where the adulterous Israelites uh, used to sacrifice their children to another god. But you may ask, why is the punishment continue to escalate? What, why is that happening? There's a lot of different thoughts on that. And when I was younger, my uh, father was a bank manager at a branch outside of Los Angeles. And he was on the phone one day, and there was individuals that came in to rob the bank. And they told everybody to get down on the ground. Well, my dad was on the phone. He didn't hear them say to get down on the ground. And so the robber came up to him, put the gun at his cheek, and shot him. Fortunately, he survived. But the robber probably didn't go in 
um, with the thought that he was going to murder somebody. Um, and he probably wasn't angry until he saw my dad on the phone and assumed that he was calling that there was a bank robbery. So his anger was probably very quick and just an emotion that happened quickly. Well, when you call someone an idiot, there's probably something more behind it. It's not a quick emotion. It's probably a deep-seated belief, one that devalues an individual's intelligence who has been made in the image of God. And when you call somebody a fool, you have contempt not only for their intellect, but for their very character. We've all heard people say, you know, character assassination. It can be very cruel when that takes place. So perhaps the attitude or the deep-seated belief is the reason for the escalation of punishment. But regardless, Jesus is showing us that there's something deeper than just the action. That below that, that there's an attitude that has to be addressed also. The entire iceberg that you see up there needs to be blasted to pieces. The new rule of the heart is that any anger, any attitude like that described is not consistent with Christ's kingdom rule in our lives. The kingdom rule goes further than just our attitude towards other. It also extends to caring about others' attitudes towards us. Matthew 23, going on in this passage, Jesus is talking about, he goes, So, if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple, and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. It is true that often when we put our eyes off of ourselves and look at others and how we've offended them, it changes our behavior and sometimes takes away our anger. I like, as it relates to the scripture, I like what the expositor's Bible commentary says. It says, we are more likely to remember when we ourselves have something against others than when we have done something to offend others. If we are truly concerned about our anger and hate, we should be no less concerned when we engender them in others. I bet that 99.9% of you have somebody, past or present, that you've offended. I know I have. And at some point, we've justified it and kind of said to ourselves, well, that's their issue. It's not, it's not really my issue. 30 years ago, I met a gentleman named Eddie. Um, I had just started working at the place that I was employed, and he was a manager. I was just a peon, and um, he was a really nice friend. We ended up being in the same neighborhood. Um, worked with him for over 10 years. He'd do anything for you. Um, a great guy. I went on and 
kept moving up the corporate ladder, and about 15 years later, um, and I hadn't stayed in touch with them that much, but um, I found myself in a position where I was now a vice president that had to make a decision about the contract and whether certain positions stayed in that contract, and his position was one of the ones that had to go away. Um, I didn't really have a conversation with him about that. Um, and I know that that offended him. So I know that we probably all have examples like that. I really never reached out to him. Well, Jesus says that, you know, if, you have, if you're worshiping, if you're making a sacrifice, if you're worshiping and you have something that you know you've offended another on, go and get reconciled and then come back to worship. Well, why does Jesus make a big point of that? Well, because our worship is not just vertical. Our worship is first horizontal. Our worship starts with how we treat other people. You know, James says this is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God to visit orphans and widows in their distress. We are fooling ourselves if we believe that worship is just a vertical experience. Jesus is making it clear that we need to get the horizontal right because that's a big part of our worship. This passage starts off, did I click that? <laughs> uh, maybe I didn't click on to the next one. Okay. This passage um, starts off with so. Um, in another translation, it starts off with therefore. So whenever you see a therefore, you should ask, what's the therefore, therefore? So I did, and so the we know that what was there before was that Jesus was explaining what the punishment was for anger. And then what follows is a discussion about us looking at who we've offended. Well, who is angry in that situation? It's not us that is angry. It's the individual that we've offended that perhaps is angry at us. So who is the punishment for? It's not related to us. It's related to the person that we've offended. So Jesus' way is, wouldn't it make sense? Jesus' way to make sure that we don't have somebody else incur a punishment because of our behavior? We would do anything to attempt to assist them because that's Jesus' way. Matthew 5.25 goes on and says, when you are on your way to court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. I like that a lot because we all know the longer we go, the tougher it is to seek and to get resolution, right? Um, it festers. 
and becomes bigger and bigger as time goes on. It might have been something small, but as time goes on, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Romans 12, 18, we all know this, says, if possible, so far as it depends on me, be at peace with all men. So far as it depends on me, we should take some action. If we really are living the Jesus way, if we really have Christ's rule in our hearts, then we would reflect, we would be concerned, we would take action if others have somehow been offended by us. Well, clearly the kingdom rule is not murder, it's not anger, and it's reconciliation. The way of Jesus goes beyond anger to reconciliation. Otherwise, you'll be the one paying the price. I find it very, very ironic that you may not have anger, but if you have not gone and tried to approach the individual that you've offended, what does Jesus say could be the end result? Well, he says you can end up in the same place as the person that's angry. So let's see what he says. Otherwise, your accuser may have you over to the judge, hand you over to the judge, who will hand you over to an officer, and you will be thrown into prison until you've paid the last penny. Now, I'm pretty sure that prison is not always um, a literal, physical location. Um, I think that prison can sometimes be our heart. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, I was talking to a friend, and he said, hey, you know, uh, Eddie, Eddie's wife just died of cancer. I wasn't there. Did Eddie know God's love? Did he feel like God had abandoned him in a time of his need? What would have happened if I had reached out 10 years earlier? In many ways, um, I created my own prison. My soul was tortured when I heard that. And I'm not sure I want to have to pay off the last cent on God's judgment towards me. Um, the scripture doesn't say this, but the reality is you can never pay that off. That last cent um, will take you eternity because you owe so much. It's not the right way to go. And that's why Christ has made a new way. A new rule. He's given us a new heart. And his way is reconciliation. And I'm not here telling you that that's something you can do on your own power. 
Um, it's a result of what Christ did on the cross. And that he was raised from the dead. If you go on in Ephesians where it talks about the fact that Jesus is seated in the heavenlies, the next verse says something very interesting. It says, and we are seated there with him. Because of what he did on the cross, we have new life. And because of that new life, we can choose to live in Christ's kingdom. And when we do that, reconciliation is in our heart. Not murder, not anger. The Jesus way of reconciliation is really a picture of the character of God. Consider that God didn't wait for us to be reconciled to him, even though we offended him. The Bible says that while we were at enmity with God, while we were still enemies with God, he provided a path. Christ died for our sins. So if he reconciled our offenses against him, don't you believe that Christ's role in our hearts calls us to reconcile our offenses against others? That's Jesus' way. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you um, for your word. We thank you that every time we open it and look to it, you have a message for us. Lord, I just pray for each one of us that you would give us a heart of reconciliation. That that's who we would be, that thoughts of anger and words that are not uplifting just don't even enter our hearts. You've given us a new heart. Help us to be people of reconciliation. In Jesus' name, amen.